1: Hello everyone, I'm Ed Gotham and welcome to Opto Sessions, where we interview the top traders and investors from around the world, uncovering their secrets to success. Jack Schwager is back again, author of the well-renowned Market Wizards series. We're here to celebrate the launch of his latest release, Unknown Market Wizards, available now by digging into a couple of the hugely successful traders Jack interviews in the book. You'll hear about the Unicorn Sniper, who hunts down high-conviction trades and the penny stock trader who now rides disruptive trends and it's all about being early. Enjoy. Hello, Jack. Welcome back on the show. How have you been? I've been fine. Thanks. Uh, so yeah, this is a, a special podcast episode to celebrate, if you will, the release of your new book, Unknown Market Wizards. I've had a chance to have an early uh, copy and it's been a, a fun and thought provoking read for me, highlighting um, some very interesting strategies. A lot of them I've never come across before. It's actually very interesting. In particular, ones uh, the ones that resonated with me were were related to investing and trading in themes. Uh, for some reason, that in, in particular they sort of resonate with me. Um, so, what what do you think sets apart the unknown market wizards from everyone else? Is there anything that was different?
0: Yeah. So, um, I I think even those you note the strategies tend to be kind of different, and it's you know, usually in any market was a book, the strategies of traders are different from each other. And, and this kind of book is no different. To, in that respect, they're different from each other for the most part. And they're also different from, from strategies discussed in other books. And sometimes, sometimes they're totally unique, uh, having nothing even remotely close, uh, uh, like somebody like Camillo. But um, basically, though, when you talk about what sets them apart... A lot of those things are do have some similarities. So, for example, uh, you know the traders in this book and true marketers in general tend to be very disciplined. Very disciplined people. Uh, They, for the most part, uh, are are traders who understand that risk management is probably more important than a methodology, and they spend a lot of attention, focus, and training, self training to ensure to that risks are appropriately managed. Um, one common denominator I think you'll see that does come up strikingly in this book, it comes up in other uh, Markowitz's books as well, but I think particularly so in this book, is that many of the traders, regardless of how different they are, have strategies where they're looking, where on any particular trade, they're looking to make much more than they're willing to risk, and they're looking for those points in time where they believe the market is offering uh, an opportunity for a relatively large gain for a required risk that is much lower. That that doesn't happen all the time, or even often, but there are particularly points in time where whatever the trader's strategy is, uh, applying that strategy can allow for using a relatively close protective stop or exit if it doesn't work out relative to the gain that is possible if, if the call is correct. And interestingly, it's as true for traders that are purely technical as, as those are, are purely fundamental. So I could think of somebody like Brand, who's totally technical, where he talks about specific chart points where that may be true. And people like, uh, Amrit Sal or Daljit Daliwal who are looking to pinpoint exact trades to fundamental events in which they believe the market will roar or crash and are ready to get out very quickly if they're wrong. But again, they're pinpointing very very specific points in time.
1: Yeah. And is this? I believe this is. Is this your fifth book now? It is the fifth, yeah, it is the fifth Market Wizards book of the standard form. And um, I was just going to ask, for this book, because it's slightly different uh, to, to your previous books, because you've focused on you know, known Market Wizards, if you like, um, what What was your motivation for writing this one specifically? How did it differ from the motivation from others?
0: Yeah, so thematically, this one Actually, the best contrast is probably the last one, which was Hedge Fund Market Wizards, which I did in 2012. And as the name implies, I was talking to hedge fund managers, right? Um, This time, I was trying to go exactly the opposite direction, which is finding people who do not manage money, who are not known, with one or two exceptions, not known at all. And... uh, And just trade their own account and have for a long time, and have done exceedingly well. So it was the concept of the unknown solo trader that is doing their own thing, and nobody knows they exist, and their records are are better than ninety nine point nine percent of of hedge fund managers, let alone uh, traditional asset managers.
1: Yeah, and that is phenomenal. Why do you think that exists? Is it something to do with managing other people's money that means people take less risk you think or why why how do they you know perform better well they perform
0: well the idea was I mean there were I guess there is a disadvantage, of course there's a disadvantage to size so uh, you know if you' although some of these traders now one, one traders kind of built up now to own a Jeff you know I, I mean, he started out with only a few thousand dollars He's now, he's now, you know, like, well, when I did the book, he was 50 million. He's all well over that now. So it's not that they necessarily trade inconsequential amounts, but, you know, they did trade way smaller amounts. And even now, you know, 50 or 75 million is still quite different than, than a few billion. So there is an advantage to, uh, and most of these traders are, are, even if they've made 20 million are not trading 20 million. They may take the money and and buy real estate or do whatever with it, do other investments, and are still trading two or three million, and quite happy to uh, to double or triple that every year, you know. So, uh, yeah. and there is a, and I think if they were trading much larger sums of money, that would get in the way, or they would have to change their methodology. So there is definitely the advantage of being a solo trader and trading smaller sums. That's one reason why they can get these types of records, which are just. Kind of incomprehensible, almost in some cases. Uh, but you know, they're also exceptional traders, and uh, and it, the idea there is that there are people who are phenomenal traders, but they don't—they're not in the limelight.
1: Nobody knows they exist, and they're quite content doing just their own thing. Yeah, I mean, it's brilliant. It's amazing you've been able to to find these people. <laughs> it's almost like I didn't want to be found. Many of them. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, I, so I've selected a couple of people from the book just to dig into in a little bit more detail.
0: Sure.
1: Um, the first being Amrit Sal. Is that correct? How you, yeah, that's, Sal is that? that's correct. Yeah, the unicorn sniper yep. is what, how you named him. And I just wanted to, um, on the top of it, um, just go into. So obviously, he's, you've mentioned in the book one of the best performers you've ever encountered. Can, can you describe his trading strategy and success? Yeah. Uh,
0: basically, I mean, so you get the idea of Amber, He's give you a feel, he's extraordinarily disciplined. He pays tremendous attention to his emotional calm and state. Uh, we'll do, we'll be talking a little more about exactly mental preparation before trades. But the essence of what he's doing is uh, specializing in event trading And so, you know, whenever there's a central bank announcement or some other fundamental development, most cases anticipated types of developments, but sometimes unexpected developments and being able to respond to those. So let's take the anticipated kind. Let's say there's going to be a Federal Reserve type of statement or something like that. So he will prepare. First of all, he keeps rigorous logs of all his trades going back since he started, like 13 years. And he has literally, literally thousands of pages of notes that he's taken on his trades of what the circumstances are, what the strategy was, what worked, what didn't work, And he's able to, and he, and he also categorizes the different types of situations. So whenever there's an event coming, he does have, he's able to draw on past Analogues to that type of situation and that plus being very well versed on the current situation and the current market and What expectations are and so forth he's he maps out Essentially a game plan for whatever might happen. So if it's going to be an announcement well, he if it's this, you know, he'll have one action if it's that it's another action and for each action, if the market reacts one way, he'll know what it'll do. If it reacts another way, he'll know what it'll do. And he'll, he'll really plan this out. Puts a tremendous amount of work into these, into these potential unicorns, you know, because these trades don't come along that often. There aren't, there aren't a ton of them in the year. So every time there's one, he does extraordinary preparation and knows exactly what he's going to do and has built up tremendous expertise in trading these events, so uh, so that's that's a, that's the preparation and element, and and he when when he, let's say announcements will come out, he'll be there with his mouse, with his mouse, with his finger on the mouse, and he's ready to click the trade, whichever way you know, whatever the outcome is, and he knows how he's going to respond for every for every variation and market reaction. Uh, so that's that's a good part of it. Before such trades, he does spend, he also spends a lot of attention to his mental state. Like I said, he will do meditation, he will do breath work. He gets he 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 tries to get in what he calls he terms, and I suppose it's maybe not an original term to him, he probably picked it up from someone else, I suppose it sounds like it is, but what he calls a deep, deep now. And so he's very focused, relaxed, and ready. And he also does kind of mental preparation. So just like an athlete before some sort of event might think it through. And, uh, and like a, let's say a, like a professional downhill skier in the Olympics, probably going through a slalom course will mentally think of that in every turn and how they're going to handle it, and what they're going to do. In a, probably a lot of professionals do this type of mental imaging and, and Sal does the same thing in trading.
1: Yeah. And it's, what I find absolutely um, incredible about this is, is how uh, he's able to achieve this basically trading around events in a day and age where machines have taken over and they're able to react faster than humans and typically, you know, some hedge funds and other sort of financial institutions have access to data quicker than Amrit might do too. I mean, how is he able to do that? Yeah, that's a great point. And it's a, it's a, it's a correct question. What well,
0: he started out when he started out, we didn't have these algorithms that would be going through text and trying, you know, and have have rules for how to react to any terms and words and could act instantaneously faster than any than any uh, trader could. So in, in earlier on, you know, a lot of his profits did come from just being extremely quick. And even though he might miss the first part of the move uh you know initial he would still be quick enough you know to 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 do very well by getting these quick initial moves to events and as you correctly point out now that game has changed so uh now it's really a matter of not so much getting the initial pop but being prepared how to trade right after you know right after those first few seconds and uh and, you know, so he can't, it's not a matter of being faster than the machines, obviously, which you can't do. It's a matter of having more expertise or preparation on how to trade the event than virtually anybody else. And that may not just be, it may not just be one, you know, he may trade it initially one way, and then based on, on a market reaction, might trade it the other way. But he, he's got this so it's it's really more of having planned out a strategy. I, I guess you could use an analogy of a chess player play, you know, planning out different moves, you know, moves ahead, depending on which what the opponent does. So on, on each possible move the opponent might make, have planned several moves ahead. And I guess, you know, that might not that's not an analogy that he used, but I think it would be a fair analogy.
1: Yeah, it's almost like um he's gone one step further than that. I think you reference like athletes in the book. So he's like, it's almost like muscle memory that he knows when this exact thing happens, he's going to react in a certain way. So it's all subconscious. It's almost like he doesn't have to think in the moment. It's all sort of done for him, which is incredible. But but it's because he's done all this
0: preparation and he knows he's going to
1: react. So it's not, it really isn't pure
0: intuition. That would be a lot easier Uh, to do. If he had that type of intuition, he doesn't rely on that. He really relies on the actual physical preparation, going back through similar types of trading situations, what the market did, you know, what his strategy was, what he had done, what he did right, what he did wrong, how he's going to trade this. So it's a lot of preparation. Now there is intuition involved to some extent. I think it is in Sal's uh, uh, interview where, You talk about how he, you know, some of these exits, which are just, you know, just spectacular and how, you know, how well he exits. You know, I forget the exact phrase, but it's something to paraphrase. You see, he mentions like, yes, like an uncanny knack for, for. Yeah, yes. Uncanny knack for for picking the right spot to get out. Now that is kind of an intuition. It's an intuition born of experience. But yeah, that's where the So getting into the trade is a lot of preparation. Getting out a lot of times is his his instincts, you know, how, uh, on how far the market's gone and how it's acting and, and his past experiences subconsciously.
1: So I think there is where the intuition probably kicks in more. And something else that uh, stood out is not to force marginal trades. This is actually, you mentioned this, not to force marginal trades when the market isn't offering anything and wait until the unicorn trade shows up, which hence the unicorn sniper. In practice, that is obviously can be. It's, I mean, it's almost one of the hardest things to do—the the art of doing nothing. How has uh, how has he learned to do that? Or, uh, did you get any sort of indication on how he's refined that skill?
0: Well, he's learned—he's learned from experience that his profits come from these from these what he calls unicorn trades, which you know, the occasional trades which have great opportunity. Um, so uh, and and so that. The, those two words, unicorn, sniper, and he mentions that's what he's been called by some other people, which I thought was actually, you know, to get his strategy down to two words, it's really kind of <laughs> it's really kind of pretty good because uh, that's yeah. what he is. Unicorn, the word unicorn indicating he's waiting for those isolated trades which come along once in a while and sniper, that he has the patience not to do anything until the absolute right moment. And that's, so that patience is, is part of, it goes with the, you know, extreme discipline, and which he's achieved because he, he's learned that not only do those other trades not really, you know, they might, they might not necessarily make any money, but the really bad thing about him are if you take one of those trades and loses money or whatever, it's a little bit destabilizing and it takes his eye off the ball, you know. He should be, it's like, uh, it's like he's, he's a sniper waiting for the right shot and then he's distracted by something which is not meaningful, uh, and in the meantime he misses a shot, right? So, so it's the idea that those trades not only don't aren't worth it, or might not even be net profitable, but that they can interfere with those trades that are really, you know, excellent. Yeah. And so that's why. And so that's he knows that, and that's how, and he has the discipline, therefore, to just have that patience.
1: Yeah. Do you believe selective, this sort of selective trading is important to, to all or most trading strategies or waiting for the trades of high conviction is something most people should follow? I mean, it's not because it's not what everyone does. Like I think Peter Brandt, for example, has a different sort of approach to it.
0: Yeah, so um, basically, um, yeah, so Brandt is, is different. Brandt takes a l- lot more trades and risks very little on each trade and is just counting on, uh, the probability is that uh, even though he loses on most of his trades, that his wins are, you know, three four times as large as his losses, and therefore the probability lead to a gradual accretion of equity. So that's true. So that's not his approach. Uh, he's, although, uh, you know, once in a while he may see a trade, which is like really uh, special, but that's not his approach. You're quite right. For other trade, yeah. So it really—it's not everybody's approach. Some traders really will take a lot of trades and just count um, probabilities. They know that their that their expected gain is larger than their expected loss. And by expected gain, I don't mean the percentage of times they win. I mean that that the percent of the times they win times times the amount they win, and that number is meaningfully larger than the percent of the times they lose times what they lose on an average trade. So they count on, on the probabilities. So uh, so that's an approach. But a number of traders do look for those highly asymmetric trading opportunities. And even those traders who don't, the idea of when you do see an op, a trade that looks particularly attractive for your approach, by attractive I mean in a return risk sense, then I've accounted this over and over in the Marco Wizards books, Taking a much larger size trade on those trades is a is a good strategy. It's a, in fact, it's for some traders. I'm I, probably a number of traders I've interviewed, but one just pops into my head immediately. Somebody like Stanley Druckenmiller, and it's a it's a trait he he kind of picked up. He probably naturally did it anyway, but in those years that he was in Soros' organization, I think he was influenced by Soros's. Uh, a manifestation of his trade, and that is, uh, or as, as he quotes Soros, it takes courage to be a pig. So you, uh, there are times where uh, the trade opportunity seems so strong, and you know that that the probability is so much in your favor that you don't want to trade the typical size. You want to take a larger size. Of course, those type of trades, if you're right, you know it means the market should go. Typically, the market should go right away and continue going and if it goes against you initially or by any meaningful amount one should be out so that's how the risk is controlled but taking a larger a larger amount on those special cases i think is something i've seen repeatedly and is a good Mm
1: -hmm. is a good strategy and when you're going in such massive size um obviously risk management is incredibly important um how, how does he manage risk when, when trading such size? Because one step in the wrong direction can result in, you know, massive failure. Yeah. So Hamre trades very large size
0: relative to his, because uh, he doesn't take these trades often, uh, and when his trades come along, he trades really, you know, very very, which would seem to us recklessly large size relative to his equity. No question about it. Uh, but he is someone who. Has just like apps. If it, he, he will be there, ready to get out in an instant, uh, you know, if, if it's not going the way things it should, so he'll be very, very quick to get out. The types of trades he's taking, they should go right away in his direction, within a minute. You know, not. Yeah. You know, it should go instantaneously. And if it's not, he'll he'll, he'll be out. Uh So uh that's. That's an important part. In fact, uh, even though he has these enormous gains, and I, ca- I think I counted there were like, I believe I, I counted 34 time, 34 days where his return yeah, on yeah, a single day that. was greater than 15%. And three of those days where the, his return was greater than 100%. But on the flip side, he, has, he had one double-digit, you know, I think some loss in the teens or – maybe 20, maybe it was even a story, but he had one double-digit loss in his entire career. And that was because his computer went down at an exact, and I tell the story in the chapter, but it's like, it's probably the most extreme yeah. case of bad luck I've ever heard of in any I've ever done. But that was the only case. I mean, it was, it was just an extraordinary bad luck. And uh, that, was the, uh, that was the only time he, he had a double-digit loss. So all those other times when he was wrong, he got out. in incredible. A you know, single-digit loss.
1: Incredible, because it must be moving so quickly in the market on on those sort of things that you'd expect. Like a second too late would be. It probably is. A second too late probably would be the difference between a double-digit and, and not. Probably.
0: He yeah, has no. He has no hesitation on what he should do right. It's was my impression. You know, he he doesn't think. and In fact, I think the uh, the uh, a lesson he learned earlier in his in his career. You know, he was only trading a few years. Uh, and, and this kind of relates to it. And, and it stayed with him. It was clear this was an important lesson. And it also goes to these sub these marginal trades. So he, he took this trade, which there was a reason to take it, uh, but it wasn't a really strong trade. And and he kind of traded too large by taking his full... He was tra- trading for a prop firm. He, he took his full at that time. And he took his limit position. And then he took... He did the same, he did trades in two other markets which were highly correlated. So basically, if his original trade was wrong, he'd either make three times, or he'd lose three times as much, or if it was right, he'd make three times as much. But he actually took what was effectively a triple limit size. The risk, he tells us how the risk manager came over to him and said, <laughs> Hammered, what are you doing? And realized in that split second that, you know, it didn't make any sense, and he was just hoping for this to work. He was trying to make some money back quickly or whatever. And he instantaneously got out of every th- all three positions. And it was a good thing, of course. But that was the only time, at least in his recollection, and that was many years, quite a number of years ago, where he, he, his, uh, his discipline lapsed, and he hadn't fully developed it anywhere near to where it is today. And there was also where he learned uh, the lesson that you never want to hope. If, you've, if, you're, if you're hoping your position is right, you should yep. get out. I mean, that was another thing. So he never hopes. He, he never will sit there and say, Oh, it's going against me. I'll, hopefully it'll go back in the next minute and I'll get out. He doesn't do that. He just gets out.
1: Yeah. And so that old term hope is not a strategy. And uh, I've got a final question about Sal. Um, he mentioned an undesirable trait of many unsuccessful traders was the desire to make a monthly paycheck. And um, why, why is that a bad mindset to have? Yeah, that's interesting,
0: and it's sort of counterintuitive. So when I asked him what characteristics separate winning traders, you know, the traders that he – because he did work in a prop shop. He's seen a lot of traders. Uh, and he, even now he trades, even though he's just trading not for a prop shop, but he still trades within a group of traders. Um, and he's seen a lot of traders come and go, and, you know, I asked him separately what were the characteristics of those that won and then separately, with those that lost. He said one of the main things he's noticed is that the traders who who ultimately bomb out are those who are trying to make money every month. So <laughs> that and uh, and I don't I don't know if it was it wasn't him. It was another trader who worked in the same prop shop. Who I also interviewed. It was Richard Barge, who uh, talked about his the managers talking, who came off the floor, floor background, and they had the psychology of you want to make a little money every day and that type of thing which is okay if that's your approach and it works for you but is the problem with it is for most strategies the opportunities just aren't there every day or necessarily every month and if you're sitting there and your main objective is to make sure every month is a gain and or, and if you're sitting there for a month and you're the worst yet if you're depending on making money every month you can pay your 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 expenses. Then, when there's a month where there just aren't good opportunities, you'll convince yourself to take some trade, which really you wouldn't normally take. And those types of trades, i losing money. So instead of instead of kind of getting closer to, to being profitable or losing less, you actually aggravate the loss. So the reason why striving for consistency uh, for many traders will be a negative trade is it will it will uh, Entice them to take trades they really shouldn't take. Yeah, and I'm just, on this matter, let me just quote Brand here because I think he had a quote that uh, I think he had. I think this was Brand's quote. He said, "The market is not an annuity. <laughs> so, the market isn't there to give you a certain amount of money every month. That's that's not how the world works."
1: That's a really good. That is probably some sort of fundamental thing that people, any trade, in, yeah, any successful one probably already yeah already knows, but it's a good one to sort of get ingrained early on you can't force the market to to make you money basically we hope you're enjoying the episode for interviews like this every thursday subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and while you're there make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section now back to the show i wanted to move on to the, to the next person now jeffrey newman yeah selected him, because his story resonated with me as I mentioned earlier. I, I quite like the uh, the traders in, in here that um, their strategy revolved a little bit around sort of thematic trading. Um, is it Is it possible to give a an overview of Jeffrey's story? Yeah, sure.
0: so just in short. so Jeff, Jeffrey is someone who didn't really have direction, uh, you know graduated college, didn't really didn't look for a job, uh, that, you know thought he would try trading. In college, I think he, you know, got played around if had didn't know, like, uh, but, but essentially uh, thought when he got out of college, he, he was going to start trading, and that's how he was going to make a living. Uh, his assumptions were kind of He His idea was to make a million the first year, and he planned out how much to make every day. It's sort of, what, what the way he thought about it and everything else sort of contradicts just everything. You know, uh, uh, he, almost always people who just go in they're going to make a lot of money in the markets. That's usually the wrong motivation. They usually fail. Uh, the idea of just you know making a million the first year. And when I say making a million, he started out with twenty five hundred dollars. So, you know, so this was a ridiculous expectation, and he wasn't far off from, from meeting that. Just kept on going. Uh, he uh, this was I think he started out was like around two thousand five, roughly, maybe a year or two earlier or later, but. Uh, he, when I did the book, he was up over 50 million. I've been in contact with him uh, more recently. And I think he's north of 80 at this point. So uh, just extraordinary, extraordinary uh, uh, performance. And, and in fact, probably as good as anybody I've ever interviewed. Yeah, At least in terms of, you know, compounding return. Uh You know, and and Jeffrey's one of those people when I say, uh and i said i probably said it in the preface uh that when i started this book i kind of just assumed we were not going to see i was not going to find track records like some of the track records i found in the first market wizards book where you had these you know people like uh paul tudor jones or bruce covener and michael marcus and who were putting up triple digit returns per year and and i thought well yeah you know they were phenomenal traders but it was a it was a special time. The markets were going through these big inflationary moves, so you had big opportunities, particularly for trend-oriented traders. And also, we were pre-computer power of any consequence. There were no PCs. You didn't have these big quant shops. Uh, you know, God, programming uh, power was like was a was minuscule compared to what it is today, and so forth. So I thought that all these technological changes and the entry of quants into the business in mass and uh the nature of the markets i i just thought that you could no longer i would no longer see performance like like those in the first book yeah and john was one of those people in this book where kind of yeah I was as good as anybody else in that first book if not better And there were some others in this book so so
1: that was one of my
0: surprises actually that it was still possible to have that type of performance even today
1: yeah and what was incredible i thought as well reading through it is his strategies he's sort of changed it's evolved Completely over time in a few ways, um, and he's even made it work in penny stocks, which is unknown. Like I, I don't know how many, it can't be any that many people that have smashed it in penny stocks.
0: This is crazy, yeah. The fact that, in fact, you know, his early years, he was almost all, you know, mostly penny stocks. Uh, as he got bigger, you know, he branched out. But even today, he likes he likes the small, you know, stocks under under you know five dollars or under a dollar even you know if he if he finds ones that have the opportunity uh, of course now he's too big you know to trade a lot of these or until they go somewhere but they get big up following but yeah it's kind of amazing I I always thought uh, I, I no experience with penny stocks but I kind of just assumed that penny stocks were by and large just a scam and and a sucker play and uh, you know the people on the inside took money from you know by by propagating stories and uh, and suckers would be left holding the bag. And interestingly enough, Jeffrey, who has no inside information, about, it. has sort of kind of done extraordinary well in those types, of, you know, from his beginning uh, in those types of stocks.
1: Yeah. And so, yeah, strategies sort of revolve, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sort of revolves around the I- idea that he's trying to find themes that not every sort of on the cusp of breaking out and, you know, becoming popular in areas that are innovative or new. And he tries to profit off, you know, the, basically the crowd getting involved and then jumps out on the peak of popularity. Is it the sort of, is that, is that right, would you say? Yeah, exactly. In fact,
0: um, I, I believe in the conclusion of that chapter, um, I have a one-word sentence at the beginning of the conclusion, and that word is early, period. Yes, And I write about how it struck me a couple of days after I had interviewed him. And I interviewed him, you know, the entire day. It was like a lot of, you know, a lot of hours of interview. Uh, so um, it struck me afterwards that, you know, that the everything, the key to everything he's doing and all success is he's early. He's early in spotting these trends uh, before they become trends. Uh and uh, he's early, and then when he gets in, he, his technical uh, timing approach is such that he's getting in at the very beginning of the move. And when he's wrong, he gets out instantaneously, so it's very early in getting out. So just like two words describe, you know, describe. I mean, encapsulate. I should say, Sal, which was, uh, you know, uh, the unicorn sniper, one word, encapsulate newman which is early mm. everything he does is and when he gets out he's early he's he he gets he's getting out at the topping during the top formation or at the very beginning of when it breaks down so everything he does is is uh, revolves around the, the the concept of
1: early and do you what sort of characteristics are the stocks newman you know, sort of buys have. I mean, we mentioned that they're sort of relatively cheap, I suppose. Small caps nowadays. I think that that's the right way to sort of describe them. And I think they tend to be. He likes breaking a breakout of a downtrend. Is that right? Yeah,
0: actually. You know, in you know, let me just get it here. Uh, in the in the in my conclusion of the chapter, I I try to kind of just encapsulate. What you know? How was he done to you? Know, what are the key characteristics of the stocks he's buying? So, so here's here's kind of the list. Uh, the stock the stock has seen a large decline or an extended sideways movement near lows. So that's he, in fact after the interview, he took me to his you know computer layout. And he's shown me some of these traits we talked about, and it was like it was like he showed me and then he has marked where he got in and where he got out on you know on these uh, on these computer charts. He's kind of has his own little software also also follow the difference. He creates his own little sectors, uh, self-defined sectors. And and so he has some software programs that do this stuff. For him. So he's showing me the, uh, he's showing me these trades he's taken. And it's like somebody had given him the the Wall Street journey, you know, the, the price, you know, the closing huh. prices, you know, for the next month or year, and allowed him, you know, allowed him to place trades. It's like he knew, you know, it's uncanny. He has these entries right near the beginning of big, you know, these giant moves and exits right near, you know, near the top. And so it was just extraordinary that, you know, how, you know, where he got in and out of these these trades. So the characteristics were, like, so I say, a large client. So typical of the types of charts he showed me, there's a long downtrend and then the stock starts breaking out on the upside. And so that's where he, he goes. But it's not just you can get some false breakouts, so it has to be combined with some of these other factors. But that's one element of it, uh, or it's a very long sideways bottoming, you know, form, you know, uh, pattern, and then it breaks out on the upside. And usually, that upside, you know, he'll see like evidence of interest, like you know, either volume could be a good indicator or something like that. Uh, the second thing uh, is that the company has a service or a product that suggests considerable upside potential. Uh, So, and and often when it's a new product, there's gonna be a lot of potential hype. So it doesn't mean that the product has to be profitable for the next 20 years or anything like that. It just means that the product is such that there's a reason to believe it could get a really big move. Uh, Mm -hmm. Whether it's based on genuine need for the product or the innovation of the product, or it's based on it, that it's likely to generate a lot of hype, which will move to stock. But it has that characteristic. So it's something like it's something like 3D printing. So when, when 3D printing was just becoming, becoming a thing or just starting out, he's there early on. He's buying each of these 3D printers, trying it out. He's calling CEOs to talk to them. Um, He's kind of doing lots of research. So he's right at the very beginning. And, and if he thinks it's something, then he'll, take, he'll pick the stock he thinks is the leader. And he'll also then he'll create, he'll create his own sector, in that case, 3D printers. And he'll have that as a sector. And he'll probably buy some of every stock in that sector. Uh, so that's another element. Yeah, that's another element. Uh, another element is uh, there, there has to be a catalyst for why it's going to go now. And the catalyst could be it could be uh, uh, signs of, of insider buying. Uh, it could be something about the product. It could be some deal. But there's a catalyst. It just and the catalyst will will coincide then with, with this chart breakout. Um, the stock is in a sector that is a the, another element is the stock is in a sector that is defined as being primed for substantial upward price move. Uh, we talked a little bit about that already. Uh, next, he's familiar with the product and tried it himself, as I mentioned. And then uh, finally, the stock is showing signs of life. As I said before, either a sudden up move after an extended decline or, or sideways movement or an abrupt spike in volume after a period of relative liquidity. So those are the traits of the stocks that he's uh, uh, buying. And he, by the way, he only goes long. He never goes short.
1: Yeah, very interesting. And just like um, Amrit, Jeffrey sort of has a. It seems to have an uncanny knack of of getting out of positions at exactly the right time as well. And he's like what we sort of talked about. He tends to at least try to exit when a trade is at its peak of popularity. And but the, his timing is you know uncanny sometimes. And it, there's a few stories you mentioned about. It seems to be. Just a bit of, of, of luck, basically, that he's been able to get the right information at the right time to, to come out of a lot of these positions before a lot of them collapsed to, you know, back to below where, he, where his initial position um, was opened, which is crazy. Like some of these things never go on to, to see the sort of potential success the market thinks they'll have. It, how much luck do you think is involved there? Or is it, is it something else going on? Yeah, so, so certainly you had,
0: you know, i think thinking, we okay, had luck. I can think of two great examples in the chapter where there's luck, but it's also that he acted on it. You know, So a lot of people can have this where well, he was in a position to act on it. So So um, let's I'll take the first one. So there's a stock called Sponge Tech, which ultimately ended up being a scam. But what it was, was this, He uh, was this uh, literally uh, a sponge with soap in it. Yeah, that was <laughs> the company. And he picked up on it early because he saw this tremendous insider buying and he didn't know anything. He just bought the stock. And then he found out more about it. He tried the product. He actually liked it. But Spongetek then started doing all this advertising at sports events, you know, the you know the tennis cha- uh, tournaments and, uh, and uh, football uh, well, games or, or programs. I forget exactly which one it was. Uh, and, you know, they would have their logo sort of like on the field. And, and, and that got a lot of people attracted. Meanwhile, the stock's going up tremendously. And uh, that gets a lot of hype and following so he's, so he bought the stock like, I think at a buck or something like that, and give or take. And uh, then he, he always takes a few months off in the summer to go traveling, and he's, he's in Africa, uh, rem- a remote area of Africa. This is pre, pre you know, the iPhones we have today, uh, or uh, he had a Blackberry, but he didn't, you know, there was no iPhone. Uh, you know, the type of communication is an area where it's like remote, there's no communication. But because his friend, he went into the stock on his advice, is calling him and he tells him, you know, the sponge deck is up to $25. And, uh, you know, just like, he was like going through this crazy up move. So he got that call. So that's the luck, right? But instantaneously, and he tells his friend probably get out, you know, get out. And instantaneously he goes to the office, he gets them to sort of patch him in and, and he somehow manages to get... Yet the trade's off, and, you know. And then gets back to his, uh, his uh, you know, tent or whatever it is. And he gets, you know, this, there's no, even though there's no uh, phone communication, but the Blackberries can communicate with each other, apparently, uh, which is how, you know, he explained it to me. And so he gets a message from his friend that Sponge Deck is down to $5 or something. Like, that. <laughs> like literally, it just, so he got out at the, just the, you know, the, I think it went as high as 28 uh, and it went and and of course, what happened is the the original founders were just getting out of the stock one eighth when does this, this power pilot move and it just kept on selling and of course, it was worthless uh and so in any case uh so you could say it was luck that he got out, but he had the instincts to know immediately that he had to get you know. It's luck that he got that call, but he acted on it, right? A yeah. lot of people get called and say, "Oh well, I'll take care of it when I get back," or whatever, you know. So that's the yeah. He had some luck, but but he 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 had the instincts to, to act immediately on. it.
1: Yeah, yeah. And another, I think it was um, mentioned very quickly in there, and I've I've heard a lot of other people talk about this as well. But uh, it's a co- sort of a common theory that when you're sort of cousin's uncle's friend is giving them advice and, uh, about a particular trade that, uh, that you're, you might be in and you, you start hearing about it, it's time to get out. Basically, you know, w- w- when things get too popular and people that aren't even in the financial world are, are sort of like getting into the trades, that's when to get out. And what are your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, so I mean, it generally is true. Of course, it's starting where that point is, but it is something that Jeff is attuned to. Uh, he calls it, in fact, he even calls it. I think he calls it, he calls it his his golf indicator. Oh, yeah. So when his golf buddies start talking, who are, who are novices about investment, start talking about a particular stock or a particular thing, it's it's a it's a sign. So he talks about uh, it wasn't one of the cryptocurrencies. one of his buddies that asked him not about Bitcoin, but I think it was Litecoin or something. You know, one of the less you know you know some some one or more esoteric. Uh, 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 cryptocurrencies and that told him to, told him that uh, you know and this was not that long before we had the the uh, what is up to now the peak in in cryptocurrencies so uh, that's real like one example And also on spongecheck he talked about he was kind of attuned to this thing being uh, vulnerable because he talks about like being at the bar with some other buddies that they're talking about sponge Tech, probably because they've seen it advertised uh, on, on these sports programs and and so forth, and are seeing the stock you know, uh, soar. So uh, yeah, so I think there's definitely truth in that. Yeah. Uh, it's the old, uh, uh, you know, it's a classic, I forget which, you know, who said it originally, but about getting tips from the shoeshine boy, you know, yeah. going back in the 20s. Uh, and I think in reminiscence of a stock operator, you have those types of comments come up about, you know, people who, you know, complete, you know, people who've money or, not, or, or knowledge or talking about investing, that's always a sign.
1: Yeah. And another key element to, to his uh, strategy is pyramiding positions, which, you know, it, it seems like it's a um, uh, love or hate relationship for a lot of traders. They either either love it or they, or they hate it. Um, and, but Newman, you know, uses it a lot. Um, is it possible to just go to, to a little bit of detail about how he does that? Because it's part of the reason why he gets such large success through the positions he gets a lot of conviction in. Uh, are you talking about, are you talking specifically about the conviction level? So I'm just, so as he gets more conviction, he sort of builds his positions.
0: Oh, are you talking about what seems to be like permitting and stuff? Yeah. yeah. So basically, yeah, so he'll put on an initial position, but these stocks, he's so early in a lot of these stocks that he, you know, the liquidity isn't there for him to put on, you know, a, a huge position. Kirkland. And so he basically will, you know, buy some every day. And as, uh, as the stock uh, starts developing more of a following and getting some hype, then liquidity starts picking up very much and he can, he can enter more. Uh, so, uh, so initially it's a matter of just positioning on the very initial leg. And then later on, if he's adding to the position, if he's adding to the position later on, it'll be at spots where Let's say it might be that the market has had a big had a move up and then going into some other consolidation, and he's looking for a breakout, and he'll go with the breakout. But but in those types of cases, even though he's adding much higher than where he got in, uh, if the stock then, uh, you know, the breakouts uh, goes back, you know, if, it, if it's a false break, it he'll get right out. Yeah. So he'll get out. If, you know, as soon as he's in losing, you know, very close to when he's in losing territory. So he, uh, so even when he's uh, adding the positions, those added positions will have very much, close, much closer protection. Mm. And, uh, yeah, so, uh, so he treats them just like the initial entries. So that's why. Otherwise, if you just, you know, keep on adding as the position's going up and, and don't have some special way to handle that, then that's kind of, that's very dangerous because then you keep on raising your position size and average price and the first meaningful correction can turn a big gain into a net loss. Yeah.
1: yeah. And how, do you, how does he, because if he's build such a large position in something, it must be theoretically, if there's one thing that doesn't go, like one of his themes actually doesn't go the way he thought it would go, could be, you know, a big, Big risk on his account, and 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 taking back a, a long way. But it appears as though he still has very tight risk management. Yeah, he's
0: he's trading in in concert with the liquidity that the market is providing. So originally he might have very strong conviction. This is a big move, and it's great to put on. But he, but he can't do that because you know then he uh, he's too large for the market, particularly now. You know, uh, so uh, not initially, but now for sure, now, or recent years for sure. So he's he's building the position in the early stage as the market liquidity provides. Uh, otherwise, if he would put on a huge position, uh, he, he couldn't get out because he'd be the market.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but
0: as, uh, if, he's, when he's right on, if he's right on these trades, when he's right, those stocks' liquidity increases tremendously as they're moving up. Yeah, And especially when he's getting out, by the time he's getting out, uh, there's like a lot of liquidity. So uh like that SpongeTech stock had very little liquidity early
1: on, but by the time he got out at a tremendous liquidity, so he's able to dump this large position. Mm-hmm. So to sum up, sum up uh, sort of Jeff, are you able to sort of give us his edge in a few words? His edge, his
0: edge is that he's well, there's a few edges, uh, uh he's very observant uh and very focused on catching early trends. In that respect. He's doing kind of manually in a way, what Chris Camillo, uh, another trader in the book, does. Also did manually initially, but built special software to do. Uh, but so that's that's one. That's one edge. Uh, another is uh, that he's extremely good in his in timing. Of well, yes, he's using charts, but of course, you know, trendline breakouts. You can have. False breakouts are a dime a dozen, but by combining them with these other indicators, that the timing is correct, and then then matching that with the action on the chart, he's extremely good at picking just the right spot to get in.
1: Yeah, and,
0: uh, and the same and the same thing to get out as well. Um, he's I think he's got you know tremendous intuition, um, and but he just also does a lot of of, he he really he really does his, his legwork. Hey, uh, in in that sense, he's a little bit like Peter Lynch. Uh, very different, but Peter Lynch popularized the idea of trade: what you know, and, and you know, go to you know, observe what what what's happening around you, and he he does that. So uh, you know, the, I won't go into the whole story, but there's a story in the book where where uh, he 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 clutches onto the idea that. Cannabis is now ready to go from cannabis drinks. I should be specific here. Cannabis beverages are are, are now ready to become a thing, and so this he thinks this is going to be a, a new trend. So it's not just he thinks it. He goes to the biggest beverage store in in his region in Texas, and he talks to the manager and 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 so forth. So and then he goes back periodically to see how the product is moving. So it's all he. he he, you know, he, he really is committed to, to doing everything that's necessary uh, to be correct.
1: Yep, his story, yeah, really is amazing. and uh, A lot of very interesting um, stories from, from, you know, his life in that book in trading and, and definitely recommend people picking up a copy and getting to read them and go through them themselves. I just wanted to finish now, Jack, with um, a couple of questions uh, but more holistically about, about trading. Um, the first was, uh, do you think traders who are successful uh, is down to some sort of innate skill or are there other things at work?
0: Uh, I, I think it's a combination of two. Th- it's a combination of two. It's about doing the, the hard work uh, to, to develop a methodology that has an edge uh, and having the discipline to follow it, uh, uh, learning and, and executing correctly on risk management so all of those things uh, but you know you can have people who could do all of that they won't have certainly won't have track records like the ones that people I interviewed Uh, so so I do believe there is another element that that part of it is 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 instinctive or, or or innate skills I mean some of these people are just born you know somebody like Jeff was probably born to be a trader you know just just you know it's sort of like uh you know, take, you know, marathon running, right? Uh, uh, You could, if you do enough preparation and training, anybody, even if you're out of shape completely to begin with, can run a marathon, even though it's very difficult to do if you're not trained properly, impossible to do if you're not trained properly, but you can can do it. Uh, But I don't care how much discipline and commitment you have. If you don't have the right body type, you are not going to run an Olympic time. It's just the people who run Olympic times, sure, they have, they have tremendous skill and work ethic and, and, and everything else, but they also have the right body. So if, you know, uh, there are people, no matter what they do, will never be able to run an Olympic time because they don't have the right body.
1: And you met, So you've also mentioned before um, every successful trader you've ever, ever interviewed had a specific methodology. Good trading is the antithesis of a shoot from the hip approach. So my question here was how, how should people tackle developing their own trading style?
0: Okay, so assuming, assuming, let's go back and assume this is for a relative novice, because that will include everything, even what might apply to more experienced traders. But if you're a novice, like the first thing to do is just you know, read different books, read you know on You know, know, just pick out books that seem interesting, seem to uh, fundamental analysis, technical analysis. You know, just just try to, you know, and try to see what resonates and start following the market and start kind of coming up with your own ideas and see what works and what doesn't work. And it's the first approach you come up with is not, in in most cases, won't be what actually you'll stay with for what works. But there's no substitute for getting education, by education I mean not theory so much, but just you know people's ideas, not because you're gonna use those ideas necessarily, you might, but those ideas may give you other ideas. So if you expose yourself to different books on trading, you'll start to develop some ideas on your own. And if you're following the market, uh, you should start to try to come up with things. Now once you start to come up with things, probably best thing is to, initially it's just paper trade, just start to get a feel for it. Now that's not the same thing, Emotions are not going to come into play the same way. But if you can't make money in paper trading, you're not going to make it trading real money. now, once you seem to have a methodology, then you can start with a small amount of money applying it. And uh, and uh, uh, another thing would be to to keep like some like a number of the traders in this book to log your trades. Uh, what why did you take it? Did it work? Well, you know, was it a good trade? You know, the, what was what did you do right? What did you do wrong? Start keeping a trader log like that and review it every month or so. So you can get rid of the mistakes you make and start to figure out what does work. So those are some of the guidelines on how you develop a methodology.
1: Yeah, uh, that's really... I I think it's really interesting, and I've been sort of through this myself, is that um, initially you think that if what strategy works for someone else, you know, why it's it's obviously going to work for me, I can make it work for me. But actually, everyone is just different you know everyone has their own psychology and and certain things just will never work for certain people and you have to go through the process of finding out what does resonate and what doesn't work and something like um increasing position size on trades that are going well or you have strong conviction on might work really well for certain people but other people don't you know it really doesn't uh work with how they like, feel comfortable uh when, you know they're not comfortable trading like that and i think that's um it's something you just through experience you get
0: that's absolutely true yeah i totally agree with that and uh, and the idea is i mean you can pick up certain ideas or or types of trades that you can incorporate as part of your approach from other people uh, Certainly, you can pick up risk management uh uh mod, you know you can model risk management The people who are good risk managers and stuff like that but ultimately you have to develop your own methodology uh I can't think of traders that I interviewed that they just copied somebody else's strategy and that
1: and yeah
0: were, that would that worked for them.
1: Well, thanks again for your time, Jack. That's been really really interesting again, and I hope everyone else enjoyed it on, on uh, listening to the show as well. Um, obviously, yeah, your, Jack, your new book um, by the time this podcast that is out will be available. It's available pre-order now, but it'll, it'll be out on Amazon. A, really, a treasure trove of insight from some of the best in the game and, and really, uh, it comes highly recommended. Uh, d- definitely um, anyone who's interested in trading should go out get, get a copy. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to say, Jack? No, no, I appreciate, uh, you know, your asking uh, insightful questions and, uh, and supporting the book. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. All right, Jack, well, thanks very much. Um, hopefully I have the chance to, to interview again in the future as well. Okay, thank you. Cheers, Jack. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to CoFruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time.